This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handbars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. Typical. We had a rainy, cold weekend, and now we're recording this podcast, the latest episode of Paddock Pass podcast, in our shorts and t-shirts. Uh, quite depressing, actually, when you think about it. It's 20 degrees outside. Uh, Dave, we're in your mum's house. Um, yes. I was hoping that a visit to this place might explain a few things, uh, but you know, it's actually quite lovely. It's a, it's a very pleasant abode. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure my mum is um, uh, would welcome you into it, but she's just out at the moment. We're recording this on Monday morning after the Monster Energy British Grand Prix. Uh, guys, let's go straight into our moments. Um, Dave, what stood out for you? Uh, what stood out for me was uh, Miguel Oliveira. I mean, he was already having a really good race. Uh, he started 16th and was up to, what, you know, 5th or 6th. And then it started to rain and he was five seconds behind the leaders. And like in, I think in two, I looked it up on the lap charts. Within two laps, he was like, um, he took three seconds in two laps. And before he knew it, he was right up with the front group. Um, and that made it just really really exciting it was, it was good to see because Oliveira's had such a miserable start to this to, to the season and he could really show you know what he's made of what is what his potential is and at that point a quick plug for the rnf unlock podcast uh, because we do yeah, every be- Grand Prix. yeah because uh, basically raslan and and uh, wilka were saying um well we you know we we think that's uh, that Miguel can have a good result here and well, let's hope for a podium and he came very, very close. Yeah, there was a sense from the both of them that they're due. They're due some luck and uh, when we recorded it, Neil, uh, you know, in the the office team truck of RNF uh, racing, the, the skies were already clouding over at Silverstone and as we know, the, the storm swept through on Saturday and uh, created a very changeable Grand Prix. Uh, good to see you, mate. You finished your, uh, your work for the morning. Uh, your brain must be slightly frazzled, but can you think of a moment from uh, the last sort of 24 or 48 hours? Well, the moment uh, of the weekend is probably seeing the various mugshots of uh, David Emmett scattered around his mother's house at various stages of his adolescence and his childhood because uh, he's uh, adamant that there are no photos uh, exist of those times of his life. But curious to see what he looked like with hair. Aside from that, though, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that uh, probably the Moto3 race was my highlight. Um, I mean, I thought we had, we had really good racing like the way through yesterday. Um, MotoGP was great, but Moto3 was just wild and it was scary, but also quite impressive how the majority of them managed to finish. In fact, I think all of them did bar two guys who crashed out in the penultimate lap. Um, and uh, yeah, that sort of wild ride into Stowville on the final lap when David Alonso just managed to keep ahead of the pack was uh, was ridiculous. I thought we were going to see six, seven, eight riders crash down uh, at Veal and go into the gravel there, but somehow they all stayed on. And um, yeah, Alonso became the first uh, Colombian to win a Grand Prix, and I think it was the second closest top 15 in history. It was just over 1.5 seconds covering 15 riders, which is ludicrous like absolutely ludicrous so yeah model three was great it was the first time in over 10 years that silverstone ran in the the wing sort of format so the start line had been moved as most people probably saw from the footage do we think that it kind of robbed a little bit of drama in the last few corners i mean maybe kind of out of love field into woodcourt was maybe slightly less predictable with the new layout it was kind of decided wasn't it two to three corners to go yeah but i think that was more just the uh, alonso's prowess because uh, yeah i think veal is probably a better overtaking 
hotspot than uh, into Luffield. Brooklyn's, I guess, at the end of uh, the old layout um, was uh, was a good shot as well. But um, no, I think it was just more down to um, Alonso's uh, brilliant riding and the guy in second, the guys in second and third, probably thinking more about their championship than going all in for uh, results. Sasaki and uh, Hogado obviously finished in second and third, both firmly in the title hunt. So. Um, First Grand Prix win for Colombia, right? In World yeah. Championship history. Right. I mean, Alonso's still a teenager. Uh, yeah, first year 17. in the World Championship. And uh, wow, I mean, another phenomenal talent. Yeah, 28 on the grid as well on Saturday. Had a nightmare qualifying. Um, and said on Sunday morning he was watching Brad Binder's Heroics at Jerez in 2016. And he said he was watching that thinking, you know what? Why can't I do that? He's had a phenomenal record of coming through the field in races so far this year. Um, and uh, yeah, he was up in the leading group, up with the leaders, I think, within two laps. So yeah, he's certainly a mega, mega talent for the future. My moment for the weekend, I think, Dave, you and I were watching the race together, and Alessia Spargaro's last lap overtake on Pecco Bagnaia to seize the lead. It was something that had been coming, and you and I mentioned on the Paddock Note show last night uh, that we recorded in the media center in Silverstone that Alesh just seems to be, as the oldest and most experienced rider in MotoGP, he just seems to be able to judge a race to perfection, you know, from beginning right the way to the end, the last few corners. Um, he was could clearly see that Bagnaia was struggling with acceleration, you know, two to three corners before and through that approach to Maggot. Um, we were also commenting what a spectacular piece of racetrack that is, the kind of sweeping, elongated chicane section. And uh, I thought, Spargaro, I mean, that was worthy of a Grand Prix win, that overtaking move. Yeah, I mean, that was absolutely fantastic. Again, a little bit reminiscent. I mean, he's good in chicanes, LH, uh, uh, reminiscent of uh, Assen last year. Um, well, he won an award for that, didn't he? He did win an award, yeah, best overtake. You'd sort of think that this might be... I mean, like this wasn't as spectacular than the fact that he only overtook one, but I think this was... It was done, just done to perfection. He arrived right in front of Banyaya. Banyaya tried to get past him, but there was just not enough room for him. And then he managed it all the way to the end. Outstanding. Yeah, outstanding for what you just said there, Dave. And also the fact that uh, around Maggots and Beckett's, that was one of the parts of the track where rain was falling. I don't think it was falling too heavily. Speaking to some of the photographers that were out around the track during the race, they said it was not, you know, it wasn't lashing down. But um Certainly enough to make you think twice about executing a move like that. And uh, when he started the last lap, I think even when he started the, or when he came through the first split on the last lap, he was still three tenths off Banyaya. So he managed to make up uh, really quite a lot of time in just a few corners. And, um, you know, I think it became clear then that he had been biding his time, waiting for his moment in the final lap. Well, Alesh took his first podium for Aprilia uh, at Silverstone. So the, the, the factory, the team, the rider have some sort of special connection with this place. Uh, took his first win last year in Argentina. Now he's added, he's doubled the tally. But I think, you know, after Assen as well, uh, I was going to say last week, but last month, I think it shows that Espargaro is a bit of a master of just judging a full race distance. I mean, in Assen, he saw that Binder had touched a green. He didn't make a crazy move to try and take that podium place, just sat back and waited for the penalty. I think that shows, you know, a, quite a, a good level of perception of what's going on around you. Yeah, and I think that showed on Saturday. I mean, he qualified down in 12th, had a, a tough qualifying session in the rain, um, came through to 5th, um, but wasn't panicking, wasn't distraught. was pretty adamant on Saturday that, um, you know, Silverstone is a track where you can make a variety of different overtakes in a variety of different places on the track. Um, and he said, don't rule me out of the victory, um, even though he was starting from 12th. And this is in a class where... 
as we know, it's very difficult to overtake. But Silverstone is one of those tracks where you can uh, you can be quite creative. You're not just limited to maybe one or two corners on the track. Um, and uh, yeah, I think Argentina last year was was strong, was really impressive. He was dominant there, but um, Argentina is a strange track. There were strange conditions last year. I think we missed Friday's running yeah. Argentina in 2022. Um, so there was that. This was a. I guess we also missed some running on Saturday with the rain, but it was a more normal weekend. And um, yeah, he was going up against the world champion to uh, to take that victory. Yeah, there was a sense that Spargo had pulled out the hat in Argentina, but this one seemed a little bit more measured. Um, listen, let's rank the Grand Prix day, first of all. Uh, you know, bearing in mind that Saturday was a washout, and I'll come to that later in the podcast, uh, particularly for my loser section of, of the uh, yeah the podcast. Uh, you know, what what do you think of the Grand Prix overall? Uh, well, I mean, like Sunday's race, sort of about nine and a half out of ten. Um, overall, I thought it was just a really good weekend. So I would say um, I'm going to give it a solid nine. I like, I, I enjoyed it, even though it absolutely lashed it down on uh, Saturday and I got soaked going and soaked coming back. Did you like the fact that Moto2 was after MotoGP for the first time this year? I like it because it means that we get um, we get a few things done a little bit earlier. It is it does make life a little bit more uh, a little bit easier. But then you know, like I, well, you've you've turned up to my mum's house. I've been staying here, and it's basically like an hour and a half there and back. So it's uh, uh, the, the the commute is a little bit uh, is a little bit much. Neil, would you rank it as high as nine out of ten? Uh, the whole weekend, yeah, maybe an eight, eight point five. Um, we had obviously horrible weather on on Saturday, which made me question really the, the meaning of it all, the meaning of life. You didn't look that happy on Saturday. Yeah, it was a long day, wasn't it? Yeah, and just uh, it can be a bit grim, Silverstone, can't it? Whenever the elements yeah. are thrashing around in your face, it, it's not exactly makes you think of, of a summery spot, but. It, um, yeah. It was it was the first um, uh, it was the first Grand Prix that I got passes for for my parents to it, and that was in the wing that was in the wing and it was absolutely grim and miserable. And the next year I said, "Oh, do you want me to get passes for Silverstone again?" They said, "You know what? It's all right. We'll uh, we'll we'll just watch it from home." Um, uh, <laughs> and then a few years later, they came to uh, Austin, and it was bright and sunny, and they really loved it, and they sort of really enjoyed it. So yes, it can be it can be so grim when it's raining at Silverstone. That you, it, it can put you off entirely. Yeah, but um, Sunday more than made up for that. I think with uh, with all the races, even Moto Two, which wasn't spectacular, I thought was quite an interesting race. Um, and um, yeah, there was just uh, quite a lot going on, but the conditions were better. So yeah, I would say it was probably a eight, eight point five. I think for me it was. Uh, I'll give it an eight out of ten as well. And like you say, it was it was very dispiriting on Saturday. Uh, you could see people kind of rushing from P one into the paddock, thinking. Like in typical, you know, English weather, but uh, you know, I, I think it cleared up for Sunday. It was still bloody cold and windy, and the problem with Silverstone is such a vast site that even if you have a crowd, I think it was the official figure was something like forty three thousand, forty eight thousand. Oh right, okay. Then you know, it doesn't seem that that way. You know, yeah. you see a lot of empty grandstands when you you're walking yeah. around. And it reminds me a bit of Indy when we used to go to Indy, uh, Indianapolis where uh, it was, um, uh, there would be like 50, 60,000 uh, fans and it looked deserted because, you know, for the Indy 500, they have like 300,000 or something. I think we need to bear in mind that Silverstone is never a track that has been attracting 100,000 crowds. Um, I was going back through the attendance figures over the last decade or so earlier today. And I think the biggest was 73,000, and that was 2015, 2016, when you had Valentino fighting for the championship. You had Cal, 
uh, Crutchlow obviously in podium contention. Um, he finished on the podium that year, 2016, second. He did, indeed, yeah, exactly. So, you know, 73,000, we had, what, 48 yesterday. It's not a dramatic fall away, but, um, yeah, you would say it wasn't maybe as big as it could have been. I still think that there is some fallout from 2018 from the washout when uh, uh, people got their money back. That really uh, put people off. I don't think it helps that uh, there isn't... Um, I mean, it's great that they have highlights on ITV4 because uh, you know that's where my mum watches MotoGP. Um, they, but and it's a shame they didn't show the the, the race live on ITV, which which they were in, intending to do. So I think that would have been. But there needs to be a little bit more hype about the about the sport here to get more people in. I think sort of you, know, you would expect the British Grand Prix there to be somewhere between sixteen and seventy thousand uh, people turn up. Again, the weather doesn't help when it's you know miserable. When it's sunny, it's easier, and you sort of wonder you know what's the best date for uh, for this because we've had it. We've moved it. Used to be the bank holiday weekend. Now it's moved forward, which is the end of August. Now it's moved to the beginning of August. I've no idea when the best date for it is. That's the quandary, really, because you have TNT Sports giving fantastic coverage of MotoGP. I mean, it's blanket stuff. It's hours and hours and hours. But then it's yeah, uh, it's really just. I mean, like I, this was the first chance that I actually got to listen to it uh, sort of properly because it was on sort of everywhere. And it's just great, you know, all the people involved, Neil Hodgson, you know, MLAB, Michael Laverty, um, uh, they, they had Alex Lowe's as well uh, uh, talking about it, you know, Susie Perry, who's a stalwart of the of, of MotoGP coverage. Um, uh, Charlie Hiss got uh, a shout out for, for Charlie because Charlie's just fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah I mean, come back to the podcast. <laughs> it's just an out, it's just really, really good, it's just outstanding coverage. Yeah, I think it, it's the problem with being pay per view TV, pay per view, pay per view, subscription television. Yeah. Uh, that's you know you do have that expertise and uh, that quality of coverage, but then you're minimising your audience. And yeah. uh, I think I was speaking to some people from uh, the national press office at Silverstone, and they believe that selectivity when it comes to the audience is not helping the exposure of MotoGP. But then you know Dorna take the income from TNT Sports, and part of that income goes, of course, to their their books. But then the rest of it sort of filters into the paddock and helps the the series move around the world. So it's a it's almost like a, a necessary evil. But I do wonder if they're going to have to look at the strategy if they want to expansion in the UK market and change it in the coming years. But coming back to Silverstone, um, I was driving out on Saturday night, and it was. It was just pretty miserable. It was still raining. I was thinking, how on earth is it going to clear up for Sunday? And I passed by the Monster Energy compound, and I just couldn't help but sort of be impressed by how much those guys lay on as title sponsors. I mean, there was freestyle ramps. I mean, the branding was like on point. There was lots of activities for people that are rolling up there, and it was just deserted. Yeah, I, uh, well, yeah, but I mean, like I rolled in on Sunday morning, uh, and... I was surprised there was really a lot of people uh, there through that whole area, that whole sort of, you know, first area when you come over, when you come past the roundabout and through the gate. Um, there's so much going on. Uh, like, they really do put the effort in to make it a show. And I think I went out on, I think I went out on Saturday night, quite late, about 10 o'clock, and there was a rock band playing. Uh, and they were... You know, Kaiser they, Chiefs. I have no idea. You didn't yeah. stop to have a bit of a, a boogie day. I did not stop to have a boogie because it was raining. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean that was great, and you know there was it sounded like there was a there was a good crowd, and they were really sort of you know giving it to uh, doing what they needed to. So yeah, it was they they were putting in the effort. Well, yeah, so and they put on a decent bit for some of the media as well. They had attracted some, um, brought some uh, media from different websites and newspapers as well. 
um, and laid on a bit of a spread in terms of uh, riders that they could talk to, Banyaya, the VR46 Ducati guys, Fabio Quattararo, um, and for people that have never been to MotoGP race to suddenly be sat in front of uh, the reigning world champion. Um, you know, it's pretty decent access that you set up, I think. Yeah, well, we were part of that as well, that roundtable interview, Neil. I mean, if people want to hear some of the quotes from Pedro Bagnaia, then check out our first, uh, first Paddock Pass podcast note show from Thursday at Silverstone. Free um, for everyone to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, again, the Silverstone National Press Office were saying how for Formula One, the circuit is sold out. Uh, ticket prices are around £300. I mean, I guess that's around about €330 Euros just for one day on a Sunday. Uh, but they get 160,000 people there to fill the site. So, I mean, MotoGP, as we know, is nowhere near as big as F1, but it still has some way to go to reach, you know, anything near the levels when it comes to the size of the event. Anyway, moving on. Uh, at this point, I want to remind people, you know, check out Renthor.com. Um, if you have a street bike, I mean, they are masters when it comes to off-road machinery, but if you have a street bike, they also have loads of accessories for you to check out handlebars, grips, sprockets, everything. Just go to the website renthor.com and you'll be able to find something or some way to upgrade your motorcycle. Dave, I know when it comes to talking points, we want to have a quick touch on tire pressures because it was a big kind of subject heading into the Grand Prix. But first, I think we have to do due diligence to Aprilia because Ducati have dominated MotoGP so far this season, but the, the black bikes really made a statement in the UK this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like uh, I spoke to um, uh, Romana Albasiano, the um, head of uh, Aprilia's engineering, um, at the end of the race, and we'll be hearing from him later on, I think. Um, but he was saying, "Look, we know that, that, that our bikes are good around here because they've had. I think the, the, this is now the third race in a row that they've had. Um, uh, they've had a podium. They've had a third, a second, and a first uh, now. So it, yeah, they know that the, tra- that the track is strong here, but the fact that Last year's bike, uh, you know, they had three Aprilis in the top five. Maverick Vinyal has burned up his rear tire, um, uh, try catching, uh, catching every, uh, catching the group in the middle of the race, um, so he couldn't quite fight towards the end. Um, even Raúl Fernández finished tenth. I mean, you know, so there was a few riders who fell out at the end, but it was it was a much much stronger uh, showing from him. And the bike suits this kind of layout. This is uh, a bit like Assen. We also see, you know, the Aprilis are strong at Assen. Fast flying tracks. That's what this. That's what Aprilia's are good at. Well, Lesh was explaining that the bike could just use grip and yeah. traction better than anything else. Uh, that was the, the clear advantage that you could see. But Neil, if we talk about Aprilia generally, then if you compare it to Honda and Yamaha, the contrast is, is stark. I mean, you have the Italians testing a new carbon chassis at Misano. Uh, you know, Alessio Spargaro and Maverick Vinales could even ride that bike potentially at the Misano test coming up, and they seem to be the most proactive factory you'd say at the moment certainly in terms of visibility and stuff that they're trying i mean Spargaro had a new fairing for silverstone it said it gave him the extra bit of agility and stability that he'd been asking for and the effect was clear yeah exactly um i think my is just riding a new swing arm as well in the race um so you know they've been busy over the the summer months lorenzo salvador has been testing a few different things and i guess it's just a, a great motivator for the riders when they see this new stuff continuing to uh come at them from the uh, the test team um you know Aprilia hasn't stood still uh, after the success last year they have pushed again to try and uh, to try and build on that um you know had Miguel Oliveira not been injured unfortunately in, in several different crashes at the start of the season I think we would have seen him feature a lot more toward the uh, the podium fight in races so far this year 
Um, and, you know, when you consider that, then you have, yeah, three strong Aprilia guys on the grid, um, which is uh, which is a pretty pretty remarkable achievement because, um, you know, uh, uh, for the first half of last year anyway, you know, it was just Aleish doing the, the heavy lifting. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, you would say that, you know, Ducati aren't necessarily appearing proactive at the moment because they've got such a settled brilliant package exactly they don't need to bring anything new because the bike is just the you know it's the best bike on the grid by a little bit of a margin um but yeah certainly ktm and aprilia you know it's good to see that they're not just content to be second or third best manufacturer in MotoGP at the moment they are pushing on to try and catch up to Ducati. so um it also kind of reflects i think in, in espargo's attitude he sort of thinks that his approach at the start of the year was wrong he was maybe uh, a bit unrealistic in terms of his expectations said that um, he started the year thinking I'm fighting for world champion to be world champion this year wasn't working out in the first races and he made a couple of crucial mistakes but seems to have found his way now and he is pretty adamant that he can still finish top three in the championship overall yeah I was trying to ask him in the press conference if he felt especially the technical upgrade would mean can probably have a bit more consistency I mean, he pointed out that they have been quick, but they have made mistakes. So I just wonder if, you know, maybe the change in his mentality as well as the extra refinements they're bringing could make them arguably the second best brand in the series as we move on. But um, Dave, do we think the Gigi's getting bored? You know, the Ducati is so good. Uh, you know, the, the 22 bike is, as we saw, Marco Bezzecchi is still so competitive. Makes you wonder what he's doing. Is he just like chilling out in his back garden, listening to music and gardening? I cannot imagine him doing that for a moment. I think what's happening is um, <clears throat> because the base of the Ducati is so good that they are working on uh, on refinements and the sort of things that you can't, you won't necessarily see. So they'll be doing you know you know minor adjustments to to, to, to chassis or swing arm or whatever those sort of differences, the sort of the small changes that are not visible, really obviously visible from the outside. Obviously, they'll be working on more uh, aero. Um, it'd be interesting to see if they bring that to because you might expect to see that, for example, at Austria, um, where aero really matters because of the acceleration, um, or maybe the Misano test. Basically, electronics, those sort of things. It's much more of a refinement, and also probably what he's doing is working on the twenty-five bike because having a really stable, competitive platform for twenty-four. Or for 23, uh, sorry, not the 25, but the 24 bike. Having competitive um, platform for 23 means that you can uh, relax a little bit about this year and concentrate on next year. So I, it's going to be interesting to see what turns up at Valencia and especially it's a pank. Uh, is Silverstone a freak circuit? I mean, it's almost six kilometers long. It has 18 corners. The the rider said it's the track where you probably don't need the aero as much as you would think, even though Mark Marquez lost his right front wing early on in the race, and then we saw how that went for him. But, you know, is there a sense that Aprilia are fantastic here, but then when we get to Red Bull Ring, which is going to be heavy acceleration, then they're maybe going to be struggling? I mean, like, Silverstone is a rider circuit. I mean, it's a magnificent motorcycle racing circuit because it floats, which is ironic because it's, you know, sort of a, everyone thinks it is the centre of F1. But actually, I've got no idea whether it's any good for F1, but it's absolutely superb for MotoGP. Um, but it's a bit like uh, Phillip Island. It's a bit like Mugello uh, in that respect, a bit like Assen. Um, it's, the rider can do so much more. Um, the, 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 the rider can actually make much more of a difference. And so it comes down less 
to the technical ability of the motorcycle, and especially, um, I mean, especially like on, um, on on Sunday with a little bit of rain, that then takes away sort of you know you know like you can't get up to sort of ninety nine point whatever of the of the ninety percent of the of the potential of the motorcycle. You're back down to ninety five where the rider really starts to bring in a big big uh, factor. So um, yeah, it's Silverstone is not a great. But if I was uh, de- developing a motorcycle I mean you'd want to know that it would be good around Silverstone because there's lots of interesting bits and pieces um, but if you're trying to win a championship it's not the place that you would come to test you would go to Jerez you would go to Misano you would go to places where the track is um, uh, places very specific designs or, or, or demands on the design of the motorcycle you know hard acceleration from low gear because that's where you can make the difference just a quick note on that um, brembo who supply all the brakes to the motor gp teams as we know across the grid they release an interesting fat package before each grand prix and they said that uh, a quarter of the lap time because motor gp bikes are doing two minute laps is spent on the brakes at silverstone which is more than double what a formula one car does so it's uh, just a bit of insight there as to you know what kind of the riders are facing but um you spoke to Romano Bersiano, um from Aprilia. Uh, he was obviously, uh, I think you said he was washing his T-shirt from champagne. He was washing his T-shirt, yes. He had to rinse his T-shirt out um, uh, because it had been completely covered in champagne, uh, absolutely drenched in champagne, um, or his, uh, you know, his Aprilia jacket, um, because he was obviously up on the, up on the podium. Uh, he just finished rinsing it out um, because he had to take it in his hand luggage and he didn't want to go through security with it reeking of uh, reeking of alcohol. Um, uh, there was a whole row of uh, Aprilia uh, jackets sort of ha- stood up on the little um, uh, uh, little workspace they always have out the back of the pits where they used to which they used to wash parts. So yeah, there was there was a, a, a fair amount of um, uh, domestic uh, laundry going on there. Well, let's hear what uh, Romano had to say to you, and then we'll jump into a quick break, and we'll be right back. Romana Albesiano, head of the project. Oh, so this is your second victory, but this one seems more important because um, it was such a good day. You had, uh, what is it, three bikes in the top five, all four in the top ten. This seems like a very important victory. Yes, uh, when the first uh, win was... Uh, well, let's say unexpected and was in a situation, particular situation we had uh, only two days of racing, if you remember. So we need we needed to to make it in a, let's say, standard uh, weekend. And uh, also we had a difficult start of the season, so we knew the bike level was not uh, absolutely not bad and we needed to, to, to show it. Yeah. And we finally achieved it, so we are particularly relieved <laughs> uh, you've been working hard over the summer you've had sort of a few like small upgrades but they seem to be quite important well honestly nothing that, that, that has made a big change yeah uh, we know this track is very good for our bike since three years we made uh, our first podium here so we made third uh, second and win so the bike the the the, the track is good for our bike uh, and Alicia has had a difficult start of the season but now he gained confidence again especially in Assen so now this is the real Alish with the with the real bike in a good track so I think it's 
it's okay. They, now things are in the place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, also, that that pass by Aleish on Pekka was just so brave and so perfect. Yeah, uh, Aleish is, is great. He's, I remember the first time I came to his motorhome to hire him in the... It was 2016. Uh, I, I've always been... Uh, impressed by his uh, strength yeah. so we passed together some not easy not easy moment but uh, he always kept fighting and uh, finally Dai, ci siamo, ci siamo. yeah he always kept i know i interviewed him i think 2013 or 14 when he won the open championship on the older CRT, yeah. yeah on the crt and he said i just want a chance to prove myself or, you know, on the same level as the others to show that I'm as good as them. I think this shows it. I don't know for which reason he has always been considered a good rider, but not a top rider. Yeah. Uh, but in his years with us, uh, he was uh, together with very, very good riders. Uh, he always showed to be at least at the level. Yeah. <laughs> and also now with Maverick, there are some tracks where Maverick is uh, a little faster, some others where... He is a little faster, but he is definitely at, at the top level, uh, top rider level, and I'm very happy for him that he finally showed it. Okay, last question. Uh, how important has he been for the development? Because he's been with his projects all the time and he's brought it a long way. Oh, it's been it's been absolutely important uh, to have a constant reference for us, so to compare the performance year by year and get the comment from the same uh, source uh, it's been very important we, we we took some wrong direction sometimes it happened yeah uh, so we lo we have lost quite a long time in the development but finally also thanks to the piaggio that in invested uh, really really invested a lot of resources in the, in the racing department we, we reached the level uh, we are now and uh, Alex has been a it's uh, the uh, crucial in the, in this yeah because uh, sometimes i think if we had stuff with him for any reason we would we would not probably be at this level now i'm pretty sure thank you and congratulations and enjoy thank you renthal street ultralight rear sprockets are cnc machine from an advanced aluminum keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum the integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear which increases its longevity available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Panopass podcast. Uh, Neil, goodness, uh, 14th place for Franco Morbidelli on the Monster Energy Yamaha, first Japanese bike home. But the writing's kind of been on the wall, really, this season. We're not surprised, even though it just seems to be getting more and more critical of every passing Grand Prix. On Saturday, Mark Marquez treated the Tissot sprint like FP4. I can see Dave getting all worked up in excitement over that information. <laughs> and then, you know, during the race, we saw Fabio Quattararo ride his Yamaha with a new swing arm. I think he had a new fairing as well, yeah. maybe a new shock. I, 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 there was like three different elements on, on the bike and he crashed. Uh, he came into the into the pit lane because it was a flag-to-flag -flag race, of course. Swapped bikes and carried on. Um the Japanese are reduced to using 
you know, high profile Grand Prix events and TV time exposure, everything else to sort of, I don't want to say air their dirty laundry, but I, I don't know, not compete. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a continuation of what we've seen in the first part of the year. Not necessarily a surprise anymore to not see um, Japanese bikes inside the top 10. I mean, we are eventually going to get to a stage where we won't have any Japanese bikes in the points this year, I, I fear. I think that's probably going to happen at some circuit that we go to. Um, I do think that uh, the kind of circumstances towards the end of the race uh, made it look a little bit worse than what it was. You know, Fabio was actually having a pretty decent race before he, seventh, right? Yeah, before he collected or he rode into Luca Marini and uh, you know the front of his bike, the front fairing kind of came off, um, necessitating a, a trip into the pits. You know, Franco Morbidelli was riding pretty well before he burned up his front tire. Um, and you know, Mark I think was having a, a decent ride on the Honda um, before he before it kind of uh, it started raining. He ran into the back of Pinay Bastianini. So I don't think it was as horrible as the final result she chose. But um, yeah, just another race where we're reminded of how far away they are. As you said, Honda using the sprint, well, Mark using the, the, the sprint race as a, as a kind of test, realizing that he wasn't going to score any points. So willingly slowing down so he could slot in behind his teammate because he thought he might be able to learn a bit more about the defects of his bike, watching his teammates' uh, machine respond from behind. It's just ridiculous here in an eight-time world champion admit that um and yeah no real um no real solutions inside you would have to say um well also you know on the subject of mark before people want to bash him again for having contact with another rider which we didn't really see on the tv feed uh, mark gave his media debrief and said it was one it was something caused by the conditions it was when the rain yeah. was falling uh, we were lucky to see, I think, riders at the front of the field handle the conditions expertly, especially in the case of Brad Binder, who you know, has previous form riding slicks in the rain to tremendous effect. But uh, yeah, the, the, the contact between Marquez and Bastianini, according to both riders, was just something as a consequence of where the track was developing. But uh, Dave, uh, you ended up copying up quite a few notes from the weekend with Takanakagami, uh, who you know is the ultimate sort of uh, test dummy for HRC at the moment. He was riding with a new fairing. We saw Aprilia excel with a new fairing, but Honda's problems are far deeper, of course, because Nakagami had that modification. It didn't really make a difference. Uh, did you enjoy all your endless sessions and talks with Taka? Uh, I, do you know what? I actually did because it was uh, it was instructive. He did say that actually the, the new fairing was going to be better, but because it has so much more downforce, they have to completely rebalance the bike. Um, it's going to take a lot of work to actually sort of set up to get it working. And I think it is just very, very smart of HRC to use Taka like that. It's the same way that uh, Ducati has always used one of the Pramac riders, used to be Jack Miller, now it's, or now it's well, at the moment it's Johan Zarco, but let's see what happens uh, in the future um, with the various sort of uh, rumblings of the rider market. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense to do that because you can, Takanakagami is going to win a championship. Even if the bike was good, he wasn't going to win a championship. You expect him to get good results. So if he has a really good weekend with new parts, that's great. If he has a really terrible weekend because of new parts, it's a shame, but it's still really, really important uh, information. So yeah, that, that was that was very, very important. But I mean, for the Reptile Honda guys, go back to, to Juan Mir and uh, Mark Marquez, it was much more important for them, I think, to rebuild their confidence. Uh, you feel that the the, the, the the triple header before the break, Mugello, um, Saxon Ring and Aston, that was the nadir. That was the bottom. That was the very bottom of the hole that Honda were in. 
and Mark was saying like during the race he was riding within himself so he was riding to the limit of the lap times that he could do in practice um, so he was not trying to over push to go faster um, but he's just rebuilding confidence building a base you feel like this was sort of you know the foundation of uh, of improvement that doesn't mean that sort of by the time we get to Sepang they're going to be winning races again but by Sepang they might have something which is not going to try and kill them they're going to have something which we, which will allow them to get sort of respectable results, if not good results. Um, there's a little bit of an upward curve, but uh, you know it's very very slow, and they are they are a long way behind, and it's going to take a while to catch up. Is there any truth to the rumor that HRC are trying to ask Dorna to extend the length of MotoGP races to eight hours? Uh, to help? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure if that, that was uh, maybe one of the more far-fetched uh, ones. But Mark Marquez was commenting publicly over the weekend that he's committed to Honda. He's going to work for this year to try and make a better bite for next year. But Neil, from what we were kind of deducing in the paddock this weekend, um, Honda might have something for the Mizano test this year, but 2024 might come too soon for any kind of radical turnaround for Honda's fortunes. Yeah, it seems that way for, for maybe both Honda and Yamaha. I mean, um, Honda, or sorry, Yamaha, I think it's believed that they've got a whole load of new things to try at the Mizano test. I think a new engine is coming, or maybe two new engines are coming, um, new chassis, different things. Um, Honda, I think, will have a new bike as well. But speaking to people from both factories, I've had an interview with um, Fabio Quattraro's crew chief, um, Diego Rubellini, on Thursday. He was saying what you just mentioned there, 2024, it's going to be a long, it's going to be a long road back to the top, and it's not going to be something that just happens over one preseason. It's going to take some time to build back up. Um, and all indications from Honda camp is that. They won't be having anything revolutionary coming to Mizano. There will be improvements, obviously, but it won't be something absolutely enormous. So it's going to take a lot of time, yeah, um, to get there. And just a, an interesting little factoid. I think the, the last Repsol Honda rider to finish a Sunday race in MotoGP was in Kilakawana. We know that Honda ha you know, have Juan Me under contract next year. Mark Marquez seems to be staying with HRC next year. Uh, Takanagami said he believes he'll have another year, even though it wasn't actually it's not been confirmed by anybody No, yet. no, no. He was, he's been in talks. He's been saying. But then how do we feel about Johan Zarco going to LCR? Do we think that would be a decent signing for Honda? He also commented that he's a more mature racer now than when he was asked to spearhead KTM's development. Wouldn't be hard. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, is Arco the kind of rider that you want on that bike? I mean, he said he's not going out of MotoGP. He's top five in the championship. He's, you know, he suffered from grip on Sunday. He didn't really, you know, finish anywhere near where he wanted to. But he's still a capable rider, isn't he? Yeah, but I mean, that's exactly the problem. He is a. We, we know what um, Jean Zarco's ceiling is. It is basically uh, the occasional podium and being able to uh, just have respectable results. It's not going to win a championship. He, he doesn't have... He, this is as good as it gets for uh, for Jalan Zarco. And that, I think, is why factories are looking elsewhere. Because, um, you know, what you're looking for is someone who can do better than Jalan Zarco. Even though what Jalan Zarco are doing is just outstanding, just very, very good. But it's it's not, you know, he, he, he's not championship material. And that's what people are hoping for. Um, would he be a good fit in LCR? I'm not sure. Ridden for them before. Yep. Yeah, he's ridden for them before. I think that that went well. Yes, I think it would be quite good. I, I think it's going to come down to uh, Zarco and Ika Lekawona, and the choice there is between 
uh, again, no, you know what you've got with Jalan Zarco, but with Lekuona, you've got the hope of potential because he's still very young. He's 23, 24, I can't remember. He's, he's, he's extremely young. Yeah, but Lekuona is another Spaniard, and we know that uh, Dona are very... Um, yeah, we've, we've already got and cautious of the number of you know nationalities on the grid. We've and got a Frenchman and a Frenchman who's who's expected yeah, one, to be winning for a yeah, championship. One Frenchman, yeah, but one Frenchman who can win a championship. We know he can win a championship because he's already done it. We've already got eight or nine other Spaniards, and let's face it, F1 is not going to win a championship. Yeah, is yeah, it? true. Not in the Honda, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting, waiting for that. Exactly, the only Spaniard who's going to win a championship on a Honda is um, uh, uh, is already riding a Honda. Yeah, I mean, I think with the Honda situation currently, Alex Rins has shown that you can go there and you know with uh, an insane level of riding talent on occasion you can perform brilliantly. Um, but you just have to look at Joanne Mir. I mean, I would say Joanne Mir's ceiling is higher than Joanne Zarco, and he's just having the most wretched time. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's probably. For what LCR Honda can sign at the moment, I would say it's probably the best option, Zarco. But I mean, it's a it's, it's a pretty bad option for Zarco. I would say I, I do fear for him. I fear for anyone going to Honda, to be honest. Fair enough. We have to talk about it, guys, because it was one of the main sort of uh, editorial things that popped up towards the end of Grand Prix. But does Pecco Bagnaia deserve that second place? Did he touch track limits? Should Brad Binder feel aggrieved? Uh, no. Uh, well, sorry, no, Brad Binder shouldn't feel aggrieved. Yes, Pekka Banyard is over second place. Um, uh, our friend and colleague Pete McLaren did a great interview with Mike Webb a couple of years ago when he talks about track limits, where he talks about um, how they look at it. Um, it. I mean, the official word was looking at all of the cameras which uh, the uh, uh, which race direction have, which are a million more than we see. We only see the the the, the broadcast ones. Um, uh, the we only, what they have in race direction is all of the CCTV. Nowadays, the, the all of those CCTV cameras are also <coughs> at least full HD, and a lot of them are actually 4K, uh, so they can zoom in and see very very clearly exactly what's happening. Um, the TV angles are always deceptive, um, uh, so the TV angle from race direction must have shown that he was not over. That's why the sensor didn't get triggered. Uh, there's also a sensor around that corner and Banyai didn't uh, didn't trigger the sensor. Uh, but, I mean, like, for me, even if he did touch the... Because what the rules say is you have to gain a clearer... You have to gain an advantage. For me, I think if he no, did... the rule says you have to have a disadvantage. If, you, if there's no clear disadvantage, then... No, they don't. They say... You ha- um, uh, uh, they check whether you gain an advantage. Because I read the rules. But if it's the last lap, Yes, if it's the last lap. Oh, really? Yes. So that's okay. Yeah, okay. That's um, I uh, like I said. I read, qu- like I went back. I read the rules. I, uh, and I read the thing. Don't and question Dave on the rule book. Now. <laughs> yeah, I have no life, so um, I don't have any friends. So I read the rule book instead. Um, <laughs> Who won the nineteen ninety five one two five cc Japanese GP? Neil. Well, well, you would be, you would know that before Dave and I. But when it comes to Article Six Point Three of the FIM rulebook, I believe Dave. First. Exactly. Okay, a few years ago, it was you had to have a clear disadvantage. Yeah, no, to it, not incur a penalty. Yeah, oh, but, but I mean, it, it's it's that six one half a dozen of the other really. Um, uh, it's about who. It's about you know gaining advantage, suffering a disadvantage. Um, what is clear is that Binder wasn't really. I actually went and went and looked at the overhead shot as well, the the, the uh, helicopter shot, and Binder was closer than I thought it was. Certainly closer than it looked uh, looked on the TV. But even then, he wasn't. 
if Benyaya had run over the green, I don't think he would have been close enough to be able to actually have a go. I think it's a similar situation to what we saw in the Moto2 race at Assen, where Pedro Acosta's long lap penalty to the naked eye of watching the video footage from television camera looked clear as day that he had exceeded the uh, the white line, gone on the green. Um, but then Dorna released the, um, I think it was the CCTV yeah, angle, yeah. footage, which um, the uh, stewards were using uh, to judge the incident, and it, it definitely was not clear-cut looking at that. So um, I heard through the grapevine that from the footage that Dorna had yesterday on the exit of Stowe Corner, um, it was it was quite clear that he hadn't exceeded track limits. Um, maybe they could release that footage so everyone could see that. You know, maybe that's a, an idea. Um, and maybe they should have released that uh, as soon as the race finished. You know, just to have it on a replay. This is this is what we're making. This is what we're basing our decision off. But there is a system now to communicate these decisions, yeah, which, we, which was lacking in the past. Yes, exactly. Now we now um, uh, they have they use an app called Sportity, which I think is used by a lot of sports. Uh, the FIM had uh, published the decisions there, and they published the review of all of the things which the stewards look at which is great, which means they're not only releasing uh, penalties, but they're also releasing the incidents which they reviewed and which they found uh, there was no fault. They'll talk about, you know, they, they, they'll say something like, uh, it wasn't, you know, it, it was not aggressive or overly ambitious, so we're going to let this pass, or it was overly ambitious, and so you're going to get a right, I think, for example, Darren Binder's uh, pass on, um, on Jake Dixon, where he, got a, where he got a long lap penalty. There it said he was being overly ambitious, and so he was, uh, and so he was punished. Uh, others, he said, you know, he didn't. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it is to me, it's a big improvement because we actually get to see the whole process of, of everything. It's only two sentences, but it's clear enough to make you understand the the, the process. A couple of things before we get on to our uh, victors and saddos. Uh, Neil's actually looking up the one two five cc Japanese GP winner, and who <laughs> was, was it? It was Harry Harry Oka. Oka. Yeah, yeah, of course it was. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm disappointed you had to look that up. Verification. I did yes. say it before. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> cut, yes, that's right. Measure twice, cut once. Uh, yeah, as mentioned, a couple more things. Uh, Marco Bezzecchi, uh, that was a big dent to his championship hopes. Pekka Bagnai is now 41 points ahead. That's quite a sizable margin, even though Bagnai did blow Saturday. Uh, from the footage today, we, it looked like he kind of outbreaked himself. He just went far too quick into Stowe, was Stowe. it? Yeah, um, fast place to crash. Um, Simon Crafer, you know, brilliant as always on the TV feed, called it just saying that, you know, he had been sucked into um, Bagnai's draft. You know, was going to the corner far too quickly. And then uh, uh, Bezeki pretty much said the same thing afterwards. You know, he just caught the slipstream and that was it. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, the most interesting thing he said was um, he uh, brakes, <clears throat> locked the front, had to release the brake, and then he got sucked into Banyaya's uh, slipstream and ended up just going way too fast into that corner and couldn't stop and crashed. Um, this, I think, this front locking is due to overheating tyre pressures. We, you know, the tyre pressures coming up. What was very interesting to me was the fact that, I mean, especially Sean Zarco said, look, we really struggled with front with front tyre pressure. Um, it was a real issue for us. Um, it, I mean, we know that Ducati took a, a very broad, uh, interpreted the rules as broadly as possible. Uh, but now that the, there are actual real punishments on the line, it looks like they're really starting to suffer because there was one or two other 
um, uh, Ducatis who were uh, struggling with with tire pressures. Um, uh, Honda, it's, it's never an issue with, with uh, for Honda. They're much better at dealing with the with, with the front tire when it's uh, when it's overinflated. Um, I think the one rider. Ducati rider who is good with the, uh, managing the front tire pressure is Pekka Banyaya. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. I think he's going to be the least affected, but I think he is still going to be least affected. So I think the championship is going to get a little bit more even. It's going to even out a little bit. We know that the Japanese factories were absolutely petrified of uh, uh, running below the, li- the, the, li- the, the minimum because if you spoke to anyone from a Japanese factory, off the record, they would complain about why the Japanese engineers wouldn't let you run or let them run much lower tire pressures. Yeah, and this was a, a Silverstone, a track that is not notorious for being um, really, really, really critical for front tire pressure. And it was and cold front, and windy. Exactly, yeah. it was cold and windy. Front tire isn't known to be overheating uh, whenever riders are fighting at Silverstone. Wait until we get to Misano. Yeah, Austria. If Austria. it's hot in the, in Austria, Misano is going to be Barcelona. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. going to be quite critical there. Yeah, and then I think we might start to see some real differences. So I'm I'm quite intrigued to see what happens in the next couple of races. Of course, coming to the regulations and the penalties, uh, Silverstone was a gimme at the first attempt because of the flag to fag uh, Grand Prix. So um, st- we're still a little bit in the dark as to how things will turn out. But um, good forecast there, David. It'll be cool to see what happens and who ends up paying for it. Uh, moving on to just to wrap up things, talking points from the Grand Prix, uh, the Brits. Um, was there anybody who didn't feel bad for Scott Ogden? Uh, qualify, best ever qualifying, right in the middle of the front row. Uh, should have been, been on pole. Should have been on pole. Yeah, um, uh, like a real technicality deprived from a pole position. But you know, finished. They started from second, which was not a disaster. I was uh, I was tempted to message him to say, look, there's the effect of being on the Paddock Pass podcast. Yeah, you know, and the next job. week you're in a pole position. That's right. It's a good job he didn't because then he, <laughs> what, I, I couldn't quite see what happened. Did he? He actually stalled it. Just stalled. Yeah, the bike stalled. Yeah. Um, I think that's nerves. I mean, to me, it's nerves. It's a big thing. We've seen this before with British riders, and not just British riders, you know, all sorts of riders at their home Grand Prix. It's a really big uh, affair. It's easy to make small mistakes and those small mistakes get magnified out to being huge yeah exactly um he was given a few interviews i think to uh the moto gp world feed then also to, to bt sport and it, you know his voice was very low you could almost hear him shaking a little bit just the the kind of the weight of the occasion um and yeah the bike stalled he said something strange happened um but he said at the same time that maybe it didn't affect the result that much because uh he felt he would have been powerless to stop the kind of KTMs uh, in the, the, the big group fight, um, even if he got away well and was leading, you know, the, the first two or three corners. The top 10 machines were pure mobility group bikes. Um, so it, it gives you an indication that it was uh, it was pretty tricky for Honda, which is just outpowered, outclassed the Moto2 at the moment. But, I mean, he still, Scott Ogden still had a really good race to actually come back and get on the back of that group. I mean, it was a big group, but he got on the back of it. Yeah, he was 4.5 seconds off, I think, at one point. Came through, finished 1.9 back of the winner. As close as he's ever been to a victor in, in Grand Prix. So, you know, it was still a, it was still a, there was still a lot of positives to take from him. Jake Dixon. Where do we start? Uh, of course, won the previous Grand Prix in Moto2. Assen came into the race probably with more spotlight him than ever before, and that's including a, a MotoGP wildcard that he did, what, two years ago, three years ago? And, you know, well, it, it seemed to be going okay up until Q2 and then crashed uh, on the last corner and had the bizarre 
situation of crossing the finish line while on the track limits on his ass, and that lap got cancelled, which meant he was down in 15th on the grid. And I actually heard that he had tweaked his shoulder apparently as well, so he wasn't in full fitness coming into the Grand Prix. And then it went to bad, from bad to worse, contact with Binder in the same corner in the race, sending him out. Uh, an impassioned and over-emotional interview. Um, I heard what Darren Binder had to say, and Darren is quite a forthright, friendly, level-headed guy. He said he wanted to go up and apologise um, to Jake, but then when people had played him the TNT Sports interview, he thought, no, I'm not going to go and apologise, uh, because he felt it was just a racing incident. He was on the inside, Dixon was on the outside. He said he thought it was a bizarre place to try and pass somebody. Anyway, it was a DNF, um, you know, and probably just sort of finished... Uh, one of the bright hopes for most of the fans, I imagine, at the Grand Prix. Yeah, but I think, again, it's just, you know, nerves. It's a big occasion. He was, uh, like, Jake was really at the spotlight, uh, at the centre of attention this weekend. But and he's getting better and better at coping with that, but it's still a big stage. But, I mean, Scott Ogden's, what, 19 now? Uh, you know, Jake Dixon's, I think, almost 10 years older than that. Is he 25, 26? He's 27. Okay, so... He's significantly more experienced, and for all his undoubted talent, he's just shown himself to be a little bit still mentally fragile. Can we say that? I mean, it's uh, yeah. It's I mean, it, you, there are there are certain times where you just have to close off the world and, and focus. And I don't think I think that is also like Jake is a very open person. You know, he's very open. He's very mm-hmm. uh, expressive and all the rest of it. And I think that a bit like Alicia Spargo, we've seen this with, with Alicia as well. Because Lace is very open, very expressive. Paula Spargo are the same, very open. And so um, in intense pressure situations, they can respond quite badly to it. Um, through no fault of their own, it's just, it's just the way that they are. But you know, they, 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 that sort of happens to them. Yeah, I, you know, obviously crash night of uh, the home GP in the first lap. After contact, you are going to be raging at uh, the person you made contact with. Um I can understand his anger, and considering that he did feel he was back in the championship fight, um, you know there was a lot riding on that. Aside from it being his home Grand Prix, um, looking at the thing, I think it was a bit of a racing incident, just because of the nature of the the club corner. You double right, basically hanging off the right hand side of your bike. Jake thought that you know he had a few uh, similar posi- uh, situations last year at that corner where I think he was racing by Gura, and he said Gura was on the inside. He was on the outside, and Gura, you know, would be aware that he was there. Um, Darren wasn't, but um, you know, if you think about where your sort of head or neck position is, if you're going around that corner, you are sort of looking to your right and ahead. You know, and Jake was coming around from the outside, so I'm inclined to say that it's it's a racing incident. I can understand his frustration, um, but yeah, it was a it was just a, a bad day. Rory Skinner getting taken out as well. Sam Lowe's found himself down in 15th at the start of the, I think he ended the first lap in 15th. So he had two Brits out. Sam Lowe's in 15th. It was looking bad, but. Sam did go on to rescue a pretty, uh, pretty respectable result. Good ride through to uh, seventh. Dave, coming back to what you said, it's ironic because we want like sports stars to be transparent. We yep. want them to be emotional. But then, you know, you end up, like, like my comment, you end up questioning them, thinking, well, do they have the, the salsa to be able to achieve and reach kind of this Mark Marquez kind of levels of resilience? I think uh, the, the wise thing for Jake to have done is not to have thought, uh, talked to anyone, to have gone into his, um, uh, into his uh, office in the racing truck and screamed and shouted and, and ranted and then <coughs> let, you know, walked away, left, uh, left it and just said, um, uh, uh, given a much less emotional way. The thing to do is to get, it's the same with, we see this with, with uh, Ryder Debris with their crew chiefs. If, when you see Mark Marquez coming, what he does is he comes in, sits down, takes his helmet off, 
takes his gloves off, lays it all to one side to compose himself and then speak. And I think what happened with Jake is he didn't get a chance to compose himself. The reason we're talking more about this, I think it was in the Saxon ring where he said he's talking with MotoGP teams. You know, there is a possibility that he's going to go to the Premier class next year. Do we think, A, that Jake deserves it? I, I believe so. I mean, he's one of the top riders in Moto2. I don't think he's midfield and you would question an out of the blue, uh, maybe sponsor related signature. Uh, but, you know, also, how would he fare in MotoGP? I mean, if he is riding for the likes of, say, a satellite Ducati team, then you think his chances are always are going to be half decent compared to, say, signing for a Honda team at the moment. But, you know, uh, how would we feel about it? Is it the kind of boost that Britain needs to, to have a MotoGP star? Or is it something where we, it's a disaster waiting to happen? Well, I think it's you could look at it from two ways. He's won one Moto2 race, and is that enough to get a MotoGP seat? Probably not. Um, especially when someone like Tony Arbolino is in the running as well, and maybe Jake getting into MotoGP could come at Tony's expense. Um, but then if you look at it from another way, it's so difficult coming into Moto2 from a national championship. We've seen that just many, many occasions. Um, he has gradually got better. Um, he had the speed to win races last year, but was unaccustomed to dealing with that pressure of being a pre-race favourite, made a few mistakes. He's come back this year. And has been, for the most part, pretty solid. You know, he's top six every race bar two, won his first race, had a couple of other podiums, three other third places, I think, as well this year. Third in the championship, not exactly out of the title fight. You know, it's it's pretty impressive when you when you kind of stand back and look at it. Um, and considering his background, he hasn't had the, the traditional upbringing um, for most riders that make it to MotoGP. You have to say it's, um, it's good going. Um, you know, some interesting things on Sunday, there were a few people that were saying that He's now he is in the running for the uh, the Grassini seat in, in Ducati for next year, um, and um, also obviously bosses of um, of uh, Discovery, um, who you know obviously own TNT Sports now were present and apparently were meeting with uh, high figures, um, high place figures at Dorna to make the case that a Brit Jake in MotoGP next year would really boost their coverage and they'd be able to maximise his visibility. Uh, as a satellite Ducati rider, um, and it does seem that he's he's one of the names, one of the leading names now, maybe being considered for that scene. But is he is he peaking though? This is the thing, or I mean, is he I the am, kind of the messiah that you know TNT and Dorna perhaps want? I don't. He's going to be. I don't think he's the messiah, but I mean, like he he seems like the kind of rider who's going to get better with age. He's going to mature a bit like Aleish. Aleish has got better with age. You would have to say that Aleish is probably riding better than ever. Um, that kind of really emotional rider, they get better with maturity because they, the the peak of their emotions just sort of you know it, it where it smooths off a little bit and gives them the the, the calmness and focus. Uh, if I was, I mean, I, I agree with Neil. If I have to choose between Arbolino and um, uh, Arbolino and Dixon on pure talent, you go with Arbolino every time. Uh, but Dixon has got potential. He would have to have a two year deal. Um, because I think the first year is always going to be very, very difficult. Um, it would be interesting to see what he'd do in the second, uh, in the second half of it. Um, but yeah, does yeah, does he deserve it? I think it's. I'm, I'm really interested to see what he's like when he's sort of you know in his thirties because I think he'd be much better in his thirties. Winners and losers. I'm going first because I'm going to say Aprilia Miguel Oliveira for the reasons that we've talked about already. And it cues up nicely, Dave, the time you grabbed with Razlan um, yesterday afternoon after the race. And, uh, well, you you spoke to the RNF Aprilia, well, I keep saying RNF Aprilia, RNF Racing team boss. And uh, he was, was in a, 
unsurprisingly good mood. He was uh, absolutely elated. It was um, uh, it, it was just a delight to listen to. He was so happy. I'm here with uh, Razan Razali, team principal of the RNF Racing Team. Um, so you must be disappointed with only fourth when you <laughs> nearly had a podium. Yeah, I mean, uh, a, a podium would be nice, but uh, to be fourth after after what happened with Miguel, uh, the bad start for the year for the team uh, for the last uh, two years, you know, the struggles that we went through. Uh, not forgetting when we first started in 2019, we started with the be being the best uh, independent team. Um, I think it's uh, it's amazing. I think uh, uh, the, the team uh, needed this, and Miguel needed it, and uh, Raúl did a good job as well. From both of us, uh, both of the riders in top 10, and and, and for Aprilia with Alish to to win it, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it shows how good the, the the Aprilia package is at the moment and how competitive your package is. Yeah, it shows uh, the, the, 20, the 23 uh, package and the 22 package are nearly the same. So uh, we believe in that. Uh, the, the, the base uh, for both bikes are similar except for a little bit of error from uh, the, the 23 uh, model. But yeah, it's still a comparative uh, uh, package. And uh, for Miguel, he put everything together coming back from, what, 16th or something like that to be, to be fourth. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, and especially because he was already having a strong race, uh, and then when it started raining, he was about four or five seconds back, and then he was getting closer and closer and closer. What were you thinking? What, did, what were you expecting? Uh, to be honest, you know, at the moment he... he was six fifth we were happy yeah. you know uh, and then you can see that the guys in front was a little bit nervous he managed to uh, get closer and closer and we thought that ah, you know is this going to be it uh, but i think uh, that's the quality of miguel Oliveira. Yeah. you know uh, to be able to control the situation to be able to to gauge the situation and catch up uh, but unfortunately it's it's not his day to get on a podium uh, but still what he has done is remarkable and like you say, maybe it wasn't his day today. I mean, in the RNF podcast, you said, you know, you you wanted a podium. You came very close, but this is showing it's possible. Yes, uh, I, I did say that. Um, didn't realize that we could have done it uh, today, though. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we, we are looking for another fairy tale story you know especially with the team especially the journey that we've been through um, and to make a really nice comeback and not so bad you know because still got 11 races to go uh, but this is a new beginning for for Miguel and our uh, and Raul so uh, we just have to keep up uh, the momentum does this change the planning going forward does it change your uh, you know your expectations going forward or was this what you were hoping for and what you were aiming for all the time no well this is what we expect out of Miguel actually you know uh, he showed that to everybody in his in his home Grand Prix then he got injured and he showed it again in in Austin then he got injured he struggled with because of the, that injury and and he's hundred percent fit and that five weeks break is really good and and this shows his uh, his uh, quality as a as, as a writer so um, and this is Miguel yeah. um, uh, so I think um, uh, we will look at it round by round um, but I think I think we expect the momentum to go for the yeah so this is like this is the reset this is the reason start of the start of the new championship again and and start season all over again exactly it is like like we said uh, um, early in the week it's a reset for the team uh, still 
11 races to go now. Um, I mean, we may not be competitive in a world championship, but to get a couple of podiums, well, now I say a couple, <laughs> <laughs> to get, you know, to, to, be, to be competitive in, in, in each round, that's what we want. Yeah, exactly. And also, um, just a word about Raul, because he was uh, more consistent, stronger, not amazing, but solid, very solid, the sort of thing you're expecting. Yeah, Raul was uh, a bit of a hard work, uh, um, and we realized that um, since the very beginning, and over the five weeks break, we had a good uh, chat uh, discussion with him, especially last night. You know, he did it again in the sprint race when he was amongst the top names and suddenly fall back and finish 19th. So I think uh, uh, a lot of us gave him that support uh, last night and he did really well uh, today to be amongst the guys, capitalize when, 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 uh, uh, on other incidents and to be consistent. Uh, so I think that's important for him to, to start and of course to improve uh, each round. Okay, congratulations, go and enjoy. Thank you very much. Good to hear from Raslan there. And Neil, over to you, who was your victor? Silverstone. Uh, my victor was the Moto2 race winner, Fermin Aldeguer. First time victor in the Moto2 class and um, yeah, you have to say it, uh, it had been coming right the uh, way from Friday afternoon. Fermin's pace on Friday was way superior than everyone else. Pedro Costa was kind of in the in the conversation but Fermin looked really good. Good track this for the uh, the Boscus Girl chassis in Moto2. They've had a good track record at Silverstone in recent years and that chassis does usually go well at fast flowing circuits not in part firmes though <laughs> not in part firmes as well yeah he had the good grace to laugh off uh, binning it in part firme after he uh, after he won yesterday's race um but yeah Aldeguer, i think he's an interesting character because he came into model two as a full-time rider last year got pole position at the second race youngest ever pole sitter in the intermediate category history i think it's 16 years old and um you know was being talked off as a future MotoGP star. I think it was just too much too soon, too much expectations were placed on his shoulder. And we've started to see him in the last two or three months starting to build consistency and build just performance. Uh, very unlucky to miss the Pony Manassan. And he was uh, he was just unbeatable yesterday and uh, set the fastest lap on the penultimate lap. And he was so much faster than everyone else. It was, it was almost embarrassing for the other guys. So, yeah, for me, I think uh, did brilliantly. First of many MotoGP wins, I feel. Dave? Um, my big winner, I think, is Pekka Benyaya because of the what happened in the championship. You know, he lost nine points on Saturday uh, and he gains uh, 20 points on Sunday. So he comes away with a much firmer lead in the championship. He's shown his consistency. Uh, he had a bike problem on uh, on Saturday and a uh, <clears throat> undisclosed one, which he didn't talk about. But um, again, he's there every single weekend. I think he took... Uh, I mean, he's, the, the lead is small, but I think he took a big, uh, a big lead or step towards the championship this weekend. Where there are winners, there are losers. And uh, Dave, staying with you, who was um, your your poor wretch from Silverstone? I mean, well, we've discussed it before. The Japanese manufacturers, basically. I think, um, like I said, I think the, the 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 last triple header was the Nadia. I think this was the first step on the return, but it does mean that they're at absolute rock bottom. Uh, I'm going to say uh, Saturday ticket holders because I, I considering I got drenched on Friday at Goodwood, and then the festival was subsequently cancelled on the Saturday, uh, and then you know we've got 
sort of semi-drenched again on Saturday while trying to run to the Moto E paddock uh, to do an interview. I'm, I'm fed up with Saturdays in the UK. Uh, yeah, I um, uh, shout out to Alpine Stars for letting me, uh, for drying my gloves for me, which was lovely. I went in and got some warm, tusty, dry gloves after they got soaked on the way in. And plus, um, you know, I've got their waterproof gear and it's been, that, that was fantastic. That kept me warm and dry uh, there and back um, in otherwise miserable conditions. Isn't championship football also played on Saturdays in the UK as well? Is that another yeah. reason for your... Uh, yeah, I, I suspect it might be. Well, it's a loser so blatantly obvious, Neil, I wasn't going to mention it. But uh, yeah, Queen's Park Rangers did concede a goal after 36 seconds in the new season. So uh, yeah, flying the flag high. Who was your loser? Well, um, when we were discussing this before we started recording, I said uh, Marco Bezzecchi was going to be my loser. But actually thinking about it a bit more, I'm going to say in there Bastianini because... Uh, he's had a five-week summer break. We expected him to return from the summer break firing on all cylinders. We expected to maybe start seeing an air, um, the Ian air from last year, um, which was a, a very, um, a very, very fast rider and one that was continually pushing the fastest guys in the category. And uh, he was a long way off. Um, and afterwards, the race, sorry, after the race on Sunday, he was just saying hi. Um, he still hasn't adapted to the new bike. He still doesn't feel um, it's performing as he wants. He thinks it's nervous. It's twitchy. They've tried lots of different solutions to try and uh, make the bike turn better. Um, but yeah, he still it seems quite some far, quite some distance away from uh, getting the best out of the, the GP23. Um, and you know, if he doesn't start performing in the next couple of months, we know how you know rumors start in Ducati. Um, you know, I'm not suggesting that he's going to be out of the factory team next year, but you don't want to be going. Full, Petrucci. <laughs> you don't want to be going a full season without getting any real notable results. You know, and Ed does have to start picking it up soon. Yeah, I mean, uh, Anaya Bastianini is, is almost like the classic case of why you don't always want to be in a factory team. That's a uh, topic for a separate podcast, which you could talk about for a long time. But really, being in the factory, uh, being in a factory team, and especially the factory Ducati team, brings a lot of pressure. And it makes it much more difficult. And there are certain personalities that um, do well in a factory setting and others don't. And I'm afraid that Anaya might be much better off in a satellite team. Well, I think his story's flown under the radar so far because people are giving him time to come back from injury. But like you guys say, I think it's gonna there's going to be a time limit on that because you know if the results are not coming by the, the time we get to the overseas, into the meat of the overseas race. No, I think beginning of next season, and then 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 you'll really start to see you know Jorge Martin start uh, um, slapping Gigi around the head. Yeah, I think uh, you know he's got another couple of races, but it was it was around this time last year that he started to really show some great form. Had a good ride at Silverstone, and I think he was on pole at uh, the Red Bull Ring. Um, so yeah, Mizano, we all know how brilliant he is there. If he's, if he's, you know, in the next three or four races, if he's not up there, then I think we, we might start getting worried about him. Uh, a massive thanks to Renthor.com for helping us with the podcast. Also, a shout out to Monster Energy, like we said, for helping with some media opportunities. Um, they know how to do a 360 kind of experience when it comes to their events. So thanks to them also. Don't forget to check out all our content on Patreon as well, guys. The first show from the Grand Prix is usually free. After that, then we go into tiered levels for people that follow us. But there's loads of good stuff on there right mm-hmm. after the Grand Prix. Um, you can find us at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter or X, if I'm being accurate now. Uh, Dave, you're frowning at me furiously. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, we're keeping it with Twitter. Um, as always, send us any comments. Um, you know, we upload the file to SoundCloud, but then you can find it, you know, wherever you get your podcast usually. Uh, Red Bull Ring next. We'll be back next week. Uh, Dave, you've got a, fan- a fascinating interview of Lynn Jarvis, um, you know, from Yamaha. So hopefully we'll be putting that into the show. No, we're not. You can go near ahead of me. Right, okay. So that's a Jack Moto Miller. Matters. Jack Miller. Jack Miller. Okay, so motomatters.com com for the Lynn Jarvis interview. And then I've had a past podcast we'll have an interview with Jack Miller. Yeah, and Jack was really, really good. Gave us 20 minutes of really, really good insight into what it takes to be a racer. And also ahead of um, the Grand Prix van Oosterreich, then... Um, <laughs> What Come else? on, give me your marks for effort at least. I could have just said <laughs> yeah, Austrian no, Grand Prix. Full marks for trying. Okay, so Rebel KTM rider there before the Austrian Grand Prix, so that'll work out nicely. Other than that, guys, thanks for listening. Um, again, send us any feedback, and uh, we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.